The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. We have been, uh, for many months now, uh, going line by line through the Apostles' Creed, hopefully to a great benefit of an encouragement of your faith and of learning together. We come this morning to the article in the Apostles' Creed, I Believe in the Forgiveness of Sins. We're going to be looking together in the New Testament in Matthew, uh, Matthew 26. So would you turn there with me in the Bible to Matthew 26? Uh, you'll see just one verse this morning, just one verse for our reading, uh, but it's going to create a, a jumping off point to expand upon Matthew 26. So if you haven't already turned there to Matthew 26, uh, and uh, we'll be considering that this morning, but uh, as we prepare to do that, uh, we're thinking about this morning the forgiveness of sins, uh, which is, of course, so very fundamental to the Christian life, so fundamental, in fact, that I believe that oftentimes we take the very thing for granted. We like to enjoy the forgiveness of our own sins. We appreciate having our sins forgiven. And to varying degrees of success, we attempt to forgive other people their sins. But oftentimes, I think we assume that this idea of the forgiveness of sins is so basic, so elementary, that we just leave it in the VBS curriculum and then leave it behind as if we're going to move on to something more profound, more significant, more deep than the forgiveness of sins. Uh, when, in fact, I think that you and I need to realize, and I think it would be very helpful for us as we prepare to come to the Scriptures, that many people don't believe the way you believe about this idea of the forgiveness of sins. In fact, uh, many people do not believe that sin can be forgiven. Or in fact, it even needs to be forgiven. Or that we should extend forgiveness to other people. When you and I, as Christian believers, take the forgiveness of sins for granted, it leads to a, a kind of arrogance or a presumption before God and a presumption about whether or not we need to extend forgiveness to other people. So, as we come to this clause in the creed, which is there at the very ending, towards the ending, the forgiveness of sins, we want to say that God is both able and willing to forgive sins for those who come to Jesus Christ. What a simple statement. But what we want to see is how deeply profound it really is. You might be interested to know, by way of historical reference, that Christians were often mocked through the first five centuries of Christianity's existence in the history, especially in the Roman Empire, because in the pagan world, uh, it would have been seen the absolute limit of kindness to disregard offenses. That, that the best kindness you can expect is somebody to just disregard kindness. Because it was seen in the eyes of a pagan culture in the early 1st through 5th centuries that to show forgiveness was weakness. To show forgiveness was to show a lack of strength. It was to be seen as weak will. And so pagans saw Christian believers who were teaching about the forgiveness of sins not only before God, but to other people, they saw that as a radical thing in their culture. And I want to say to you today that it's still a radical thing. So we want to know, what does the Bible say about the forgiveness of sins? The forgiveness of my sins, 
the forgiveness that we're called to extend to other people. And our launching point this morning is Jesus' words in the upper room at the institution of the Lord's Supper. During that Last Supper, uh, you'll see it again. We're looking at Matthew 26, especially verse 28. But we'll read it in context, picking up verse 26. Let's first pray and ask God's blessing upon the word. Heavenly Father, we bow now, having been assembled, having declared your praises, having received the assurance of the truth of the gospel and the forgiveness of our sins, we pray now that you, by your Spirit, would illuminate our minds, that we might read, mark, and receive inwardly by that same Spirit the truth of Your Word. Lord, write it upon our very hearts today that we might believe and receive Christ in faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear the Scriptures, Matthew 26, at verse 26. This is the Word of God. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, This is my body. And when he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. Keep your Bible there as we look in, especially in verse 28, as Jesus says, My blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So, why why is it that this concept of forgiveness, both in terms of a vertical dimension before God and a horizontal dimension before other people, why is this such a difficult concept to grasp? Probably because of the very broad understanding of the notion of forgiveness that is present not just in the culture, but the broad understanding of what forgiveness is as it has been imported onto the church. There is oftentimes, even within the Christian church, a far too broad understanding of what forgiveness is really all about that has taken up residence in the way the church acts and the way the church thinks. Consider some examples. Here's a quick-fire list of them. Think of the professing Christian who's crossways with a family member or a friend in deep-rooted hostility to the extent that they say, I will never forgive that person as long as they live. Or the parent struggling with guilt over their children's decisions as they receive counsel from somebody else that you need to stop beating yourself up You need to forgive yourself and move on. The idea that you should forgive yourself. Another example, the teaching that you can oftentimes come across on so-called Christian television that says you don't need to worry about sin because God has already forgiven everybody and all you need to do is just simply accept that reality. Accept that you're already accepted. Or as the emphasis of uh, self-care morphs itself into a very spiritual dimension, the encouragement that what you primarily need to do in your life is pursue wholeness. And anybody who isn't a part of your tribe, you just need to not worry about them. Not so much worry about guilt and grace, you just need to learn to be whole. Or the social teaching that says sin is institutional and cultural 
meaning it affects institutions and places, but sin is not an individual culpability and responsibility matter. Sin is the fault of the institution. Sin is the fault of the culture. Sin is the fault of the family, not the individual. Or the assumption that God must forgive because as God, He is obligated to be gracious. Or the opposite of that, someone who is so overcome with sorrow because they say, that might be true that forgiveness is for everybody else, but it can't be for me because you don't know what I have done. I have heard every single one of those in the context of my ministry. And I know that these notions of varying misunderstandings and a broad scope of forgiveness are present in all of our everyday lives. So we are challenged then when we come to the Apostles' Creed and the statement, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, we are challenged to be able to know what does the Christian church believe about this reality, the forgiveness of sins? Certainly not according to the culture, but according to the Scriptures. The forgiveness of sins is so fundamental, so basic to the Christian life, but oftentimes so deeply misunderstood that you and I need a reset of understanding forgiveness. So, let's first of all say, what is the problem? What is the problem? Why is forgiveness necessary in the first place? Let's be very clear. Forgiveness is necessary because sin is the problem. Forgiveness is necessary because sin is the problem. The creed, you'll notice, doesn't speak of the forgiveness of error, mistakes, or consequences of social culture, or anything else. It is the forgiveness of sin. Jesus emphasizes as much here in the text, doesn't he? That the purpose of his pouring out his blood, verse 28, is for the forgiveness of sin. Why did Jesus come into the world? For sin. For the forgiveness of sin. Because humanity, which is created in the image of God, with dignity and honor, has corrupted itself through a fall into sin. Sin is the problem. Sin is always the problem. Everybody wants to blame shift and make excuses for something else, but it is always, always, always a rooted issue of sin. I don't care what we're talking about. It's sin as the problem. So what is sin? Well, you could come up with your own definition or you could attempt to, but that's why we have a catechism. The Shorter Catechism says that sin is not conforming to or transgressing the law of God. God is holy and He has a law. And we either fail to obey that law or we directly disobey that law. Sometimes we refer to that as sins of omission or sins of commission. A sin of omission is what you don't do that you should and a sin of commission is what you, don't, is what you do that you shouldn't. But you could sin by violating God's law both in what you don't do and in what you do disobey. In other words, lawlessness. Now, you probably wouldn't enjoy a, a, a full, broad explanation of this, but the Bible has seven different words to describe sin, but I'll just highlight just quickly a few of them. And I want to emphasize these understandings of sin through the lens of our understanding of Adam and Eve in the garden. Because this idea of sin, first of all, is set, up, set apart as the idea of lawlessness. 
Sin as lawlessness. This is the idea of saying, it's my way. I want to do it my way. My life's mantra is according to Frank Sinatra. I want to lay out my own path. I recognize that God has said this and calls me to walk in this way, but I want to do it that way because I know better and it will make me happier. The arrogant conclusion that I know better than the creator of the universe. This is Adam in the garden, the lawlessness of the direct violation. God says, don't do this, and Adam does that. Lawlessness, the violation of God's law. Secondly, not only lawlessness, but betrayal. Sin as betrayal, which connotates the idea of relationship. Betrayal and rebellion, that sin is rejecting the relationship that God offers as a covenant maker, and we reject that, and in rebellion and betrayal, turn away from that to something else, to another God, to an idol, to our own selves. This is Adam in the garden betraying the offer of life given by God and preferring death, turning his back in rebellion upon his maker to say, I want to go this direction, lawlessness, betrayal, and oftentimes a famous one that people remember very much so, sin is described in the New Testament as a missing of the mark, if you could think of a target. But the, the connotation of missing the mark as a target oftentimes has people assuming that there's a bullseye and sin is not hitting the bullseye, when in reality, the idea of sin as missing the mark is completely missing the target altogether. Now, you can think some words, uh, very kind volunteers, uh, VBS, kids miss the target and they still say, well, I think, you know, I think it may be, I think you maybe hit the paper somewhere way outside the ring, right? But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about missing the paper altogether. This is oftentimes assumed by people that God graves on a curve and that the human, the human race is something of a bell curve and I'm certainly going to fall within a standard deviation to certainly be better off than most of my neighbors, so I should be okay after all. The idea of missing the mark is missing the target entirely. It connotates the very missed purpose of the meaning of life where God intends you to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. We miss the mark when we glorify ourselves. So Adam and Eve in the garden say, Though I was made for God to be holy and happy, I'm going to say, this is my real purpose in life, to be free of God's burdened constraints. Lawlessness, betrayal, missing the mark. Now, what I want you to know, and I think is very fascinating, is that those understandings of sin are not widely accepted, and I don't think that they would be approved, most of all, in the wider culture, but it is very interesting that the language of guilt is widely accepted in the culture. People are okay talking about guilt. They are not okay talking about sin. Now, when they talk about guilt, it's always a self-imposed guilt, not guilt before a holy God, but the language is in the mind and in the conversation of our culture. Just listen to your friends and neighbors and coworkers and people you come across with, how they use the term guilt. It's usually with regard to them feeling bad about themselves for one thing or another, not a vertical dimension of guilt before God, but that's what guilt is all about. Now, maybe you've heard this story before. Arthur Conan Doyle, he's famously the author of Sherlock Holmes. Apparently he was quite the prankster. He had a very close-knit circle of friends, but he decided to play a prank on all of his friends. One day he sent the same telegram to all of his friends, and it just said this. Everything has been discovered. Flee. 
and all of his friends left the country. All has been discovered. Flee at once, and everybody left the country. That's become something of an urban legend, but it makes a point for sure, doesn't it? A consciousness of guilt. The notion of having my shame revealed and choosing to flee rather than face the consequences of my guilt. What do we do? We flee. But Jesus says that he has come into the world because there's nowhere to flee. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. There is only Jesus Christ who offers himself in the forgiveness of sins. He says, my blood will be shed for the forgiveness of sin. So the problem is sin. So we see the problem. Let's see the provision then. The provision is, of course, a Savior. Because sin is the problem, a Savior is the solution. The provision of a Savior. The Father sent His Son into the world to provide a Savior for sinful humanity. That's why Jesus affirms here that my blood is the blood of the covenant. That language in verse 28, my blood of the covenant, connotates this idea of the promise that God has made to all humanity to offer a restoration of what has been broken in terms of relationship. Man's relationship to God has been broken, severed as a result of sin, and only God can put the relationship back together, which is what God's covenant is for. And the cost of bringing that relationship back together is, of course, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, here's the problem. We're not surprised by that. We just expect it. We're not impressed anymore about the offering of the Son of God for sinners. Imagine, keep going back to Adam in the garden, imagine if Adam, having fallen into sin, would turn and say to God, God, well, why don't you just send your son to die for my sins? never said that. It would have never been in the consciousness of Adam to say, my sin needs to be atoned for, and Lord, you must be the one to atone for my sin. We are not astounded anymore at the gospel because we just have learned to expect it. But let's be astounded about it. Do you remember the story of David? The story of David who violates Uriah's wife, Bathsheba? and then sends Uriah to the front lines of a military engagement so that he won't find out and is, ends up being killed so that David is both complicit in adultery and in the murder of Uriah? David. That David. The David of David and Goliath fame. The David of great King David fame. Perhaps, as Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, we might call David in the Old Testament the chief of sinners. What would we expect when Nathan the prophet comes to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12 to confront David for his sin? David, you did this. You did this. You are responsible for this. We might expect that David would be vaporized on the spot, guilty for all of his heinous sins as a condemned man. But what does David do? What does David do when faced with the reality of his sins? David falls on his knees and prays, God, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. 
He writes Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 in response to all of these things when he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now David sinned against Uriah. David sinned against Bathsheba. But David knows that his sin is ultimately an offense against God himself, which is why he says, against you have I sinned. It helps us to understand more of what forgiveness is. It's pardon in the context of a relationship. It's taking back into friendship those who have sinned against you. God forgives David. Great sinner though he is, God forgives David. Why? Not because David deserves it. Not because David has done enough good things to outweigh his bad things. Not because David's sin isn't terribly grievous. Not even because his contrition and repentance was very emotional. No. Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. David writes later in Psalm 32 verse 5, you forgave my iniquity. That God forgives David according to God's mercy by not counting David's sin against him. And people object to that. They say, that's wrong. David should be punished. David's getting off easy if God just forgives him. People object as if God is some kind of bad judge. How is God going to let David go free? And the answer is that he doesn't. When God forgives sin, he doesn't just sweep it under the rug. He doesn't just turn a blind eye as if he had blindness to his omniscient, all-seeing eyes. That's not the way God forgives sin. Somebody pays for the debt. That's Paul's major point in the book of Romans. That God does not count sin against sinners, but against Jesus. God counts your sin against Jesus. That God does not count sin against sinners, but against His own Son who stands in the place of sinners so that sinners may be forgiven. And the Bible says that there is simply no other way. It can't happen any other way. Again, it can't be swept under the rug because that would be injustice. God would be a bad judge if he just merely says, don't worry about it. If God would require you to pay the debt of your own sin, then that means that you die because the penalty for sin is death. There isn't another way, which is why Jesus is the only way that God provides a Savior for sinners like David, for sinners like me, for sinners like you. God forgives sin because of Jesus. You should hear that again. God forgives sin because of Jesus. Not because you're sorry enough for your sins. Not because you merit righteousness to outweigh your bad deeds. Not because you, you really mean it this time. Not for any of those reasons. But God forgives sin because Jesus has died and risen. We believe in the forgiveness of sins not based on anything in us. That the forgiveness of sins is not conditioned on anything, anything, anything in you. Do you believe that? That it is really not on the basis of you. It can't be that simple, people oftentimes say. 
Not only is it actually that simple, but all you have to do to receive it, if we could say it that way, all you have to do is what? How do we receive this forgiveness? The answer is faith. Faith. The Bible's answer is faith, that you receive that forgiveness by faith. Paul says in Romans 10 that everyone who believes in Christ will not be put to shame. Those men of Arthur Conan Doyle's acquaintances fled because they were ashamed. And the reason for shame is sin. And you and I have reason for shame, but the Bible says if we would yet trust in Christ, we will not be put to shame because we have a Savior. And God says that those who receive Jesus by faith will not be put to shame. They will not be subject to judgment. We look away from ourselves and look to Christ. We acknowledge our guilt. We make no excuse for it. Do you know that that's what we do in the service? You understand that, right? In the call to confession, in the corporate prayer of confession, in the individual prayers of confession, you have the opportunity to say, both corporately and individually, I am a sinner. And you should say that. Because it is by acknowledging our sin that we place ourselves in a category to receive a Savior who forgives sin. If we deny our sin, if we turn an eye from it, if we say it's just a mistake, it's just an error, it's just wrong, it's a cultural appropriation, you don't place yourself in the potential reception of forgiveness when you say it's not sin. We acknowledge our guilt. We make no excuse for it. Why is that so difficult? Because you are hardwired as a result of the fall to deny. Well, it's, it's not that bad. Or it's just one time. Or it's just a little bit. We deny and we oftentimes self-atone. Have you ever caught yourself trying to do that? You barter with God and you say, Lord, I did that, but you know what? I'm going to do these things this often and I'm confident that it will make up for that. You offer God a terms of agreement that you make as if the judge of the universe was accepting terms from you. These things don't work because they look to yourself as the solution when you're the problem. I'm the problem. The pride and arrogance of humanity that says, I can figure this out and I'm doing quite well. The gospel says, no, no, no. We must have a radical reorientation that rather than looking inward, we look outward to Christ outside of myself that because I'm the problem and my sin is my own, I need a Savior who is outside of me to bring forgiveness. Do you understand that? Martin Luther wanted us to understand that, so he wrote things like this. He wrote in an encouragement to Christians, he wrote this, Learn to know Christ and Him crucified. Learn to sing to Him and say, Lord Jesus, You are my righteousness and I am Your sin. You took upon Yourself what was mine and You gave me what was Yours. You became what You were not so that I could become what I was not. Luther is there channeling Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17 who says that the Father made the Son who knew no sin to be made sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ, by His death and resurrection, takes your sin upon Himself and then exchanges His righteousness for your sin so that you can stand before God as forgiven 
forgiven for your sins because you believe in a Savior. So, what should we say about this? Let me just make a few very, very quick applications. The forgiveness of sins and what the Christian church believes about it and how it practices it. Let me say very clearly to you, you should not look to me for the forgiveness of your sins. I am not your priest. Where is your priest? He is in heaven. And he is the only mediator between God and man, the Bible says. I do not have the authority within myself to declare to you the forgiveness of sins on the basis of my own authority. So what do we say? That according to the gospel, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, your sins are forgiven, not because your pastor says so, but because the gospel says so. The Christian then receives the forgiveness of their sins routinely, regularly, the assurance of their pardon in the gospel reaffirmed again and again and again. And as a result, I feel, I feel poorly to just tack this on because it's really a subtext to what we're largely talking about, that if you are a Christian believer who has received freely the forgiveness of your sins, Jesus says it places you in obligation to freely forgive the sins of others. And you say, but they don't deserve it. And God says, and you do? And you say, well, they haven't done enough to earn my forgiveness. And God says, as if you could earn mine? One of the clearest indications of a maturing Christian believer is that they keep short accounts with others that have sinned against them. Not just that they have done you wrong, not just that they have made a mistake or an error. No, they sinned against you. But when we're talking about sin, it enables the possibility of forgiveness. A forgiveness that can be extended to others even if they don't come to you for it. Even if your relationship is never going to be restored, individual Christians are still obligated to extend forgiveness freely. Why? Because Christ has freely given it to you. Is that a challenge? Yes. Is it one of the most important marks of Christian maturity? Yes. The problem is our sin. The solution is our Savior. And the response is an empty-handed receiving by faith of all of Jesus. Psalm 32 again says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. May God grant us the ability to know and do this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You that You are a God who forgives sins. How marvelous it truly is that You should extend mercy to the undeserving and grace to those who can never repay. So Lord, may our only response be a heartfelt worship that receives Christ sincerely and joyfully and then obediently sets our life to follow Him in all that He calls us to. Shape us in His image, we ask in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. 
If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.